darkness and hidden from our sight. Nothing so difficult and dangerous as pride. I was 19 years old the first time I read those words. Uh, and it was in this moment, reading this book, that I realized that I had a major pride problem. First time I'd ever understood. And, it, and reading, it's Andrew Murray's Humility, phenomenal book. It was the first time that I became acutely aware of this problem. Murray goes on to write, Consider how all wants of love, all indifference to the needs, uh, the feelings, and the weakness of others, all sharp and hasty judgments, all manifestations of temper and touchiness and irritation, all feelings of bitterness and estrangement have their root in nothing but pride. Pride creeps in almost everywhere, the assemblies of the saints not expected. Church, every sin, every conflict, every argument, every outburst has its root in nothing but pride. And we're foolish to believe that we as the church, as the body of Christ, are exempt. Today I get the joy and honor to share God's word through the prophet Jeremiah. Uh, and we've been studying this for about a month now. Uh, last week, Pastor Jeremiah mentioned that eventually we'll get to Jeremiah's message of hope. Today is not that day. <laughs> this week, as we dive into our discussion on idolatry, I want us all from the forefront to be aware of how sneaky pride can be. This morning, my prayer is that we don't, myself included, we don't let our pride allow us to ignore, excuse, or dismiss any of our modern-day idols. Um, and if you've missed any of the previous few messages, you can find them on the website or listen, watch them on our Vimeo page. Uh, we're going to be looking at Jeremiah 10, um, but before we dive in, let's pray one more time. God, our prayer is that we spend this time worshiping you, not worshiping ourselves, not worshiping our, any of our man-made idols. So God, as sneaky and as dangerous as pride is, I pray that you remove it from our midst. God, these are not my words. I want them to be yours. So speak through me. Open our hearts, minds, and ears to hear what you have to say, God. Thank you for this day. Thank you for Jesus and what his death on a cross means for us. Help us to honor you, to worship you, and give you glory for everything in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to quickly give some context uh, from the moment Moses came down from Mount Sinai to see the Israelites worshiping a golden calf, God's people have struggled with idolatry. And honestly, it goes back further than that. But by the time we get to Jeremiah, they've made many compromises in their faith over hundreds of years and have in many ways succumbed to the world and the culture around them. So God would communicate through prophets to have his people be brought back to him. He would speak to the prophets. And that's where we get to Jeremiah. Jer God told Jeremiah at a young age that he would speak to the people. He would warn them, tell them to come to Jesus, come back to God, turn from their ways, and that because of their sin, they would be taken into captivity. Like I said, at this point, they're, they're worshiping false gods. They're creating idols, and they're worshiping idols created by the surrounding nations. Uh, for more context, you can check out the sermon booklet and watch the previous messages in this series. But as we continue, 
Uh, Jeremiah chapter 10. Verse 1 says, Hear the word that the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord. Actually, that's the beginning of verse 2. But uh, I think it's important to note right from the beginning that these are God's words. The prophet Jeremiah isn't making this stuff up. God is communicating to him and saying, hey, tell the people this. Uh, And in in the direct context, he's speaking to the Israelites about idols, about man-made idols, gods that they are worshiping. And so we continue, verse 2. Thus says the Lord, learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. For the customs of the people are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols, I love this, their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field, and they cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. Don't learn the way of the nations. The customs of people are vanity. Their idols are like scarecrows in a field. They can't do evil. They can't do good. They do nothing. One commentator compared learning the way of the nations to being a disciple of the nations. Uh, an all-encompassing following and devotion to that nation and its customs. This is going to be dangerous, putting water next to my computer. Dad, don't look. Uh, Often we think of idols as inherently bad. But often very good things become idols in our lives. It's not a, a things issue. It's a heart issue. And Jeremiah, right here, he's saying, idols accomplish nothing except pulling our eyes off the one true God, the only God worth worshiping, Yahweh El Shaddai. So we continue with verse 6. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and in their kingdoms, there is none like you. They are both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. Church, do you believe that God is the almighty God, the God to be feared? And do we live like it? Because if we really believed that, we would view our idols as worthless. This entire chapter Uh, is going to contrast temporary worthless idols with an eternal, all-powerful, and incredibly personal creator. See, the more time we spend with God, the more time we spend studying the scriptures in prayer and gazing at the splendor of our God, the more insignificant our idols become. So if you have a bunch of idols, chances are you're not spending enough time with God. Pastor Steve Smith simplified it by saying, once we realize God is all we have, we learn that he's all we need. Don't be like the wise men of the nations who are foolish and senseless, being taught by worthless wooden idols. Seek God's face, and you'll see your idols disappear. Verse 9, beaten silver is bought up from Tarshish and gold from Uphaz. They are the work of of the craftsmen and of the hands of the goldsmith. Their clothing is violet and purple. They are the work, they're all the work of skilled men, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting king. 
At his wrath, the earthquakes, and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Thus you shall say to them, the gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens, and he makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain, and he brings forth the wind from his storehouses. So silver and gold, the works of craftsmen, goldsmith, violet and purple clothing. And that sounds like a clean pair of Jordans, a Rolex, and an Armani suit. These idols are fancy. They look really good. But the Lord is the true God and everlasting king. I don't know about you, but I've had some pretty nice stuff fade, break down, tear, rip, get ruined over the years. But God is everlasting. Are you worshiping really nice things? Or are you worshiping this everlasting king? This is our God. Any idol that did not speak the universe into being will perish. I was reading one commentary, and this author was talking about the gods that we know as the gods of Egypt and Babylon and Greece and Rome. Uh, some of them seemed to rule the world at their time. But now we only know them through archaeology, history, ancient texts, and legends. And I love it when he says, history is the graveyard of the gods, lowercase g. Church, we don't serve a temporary and worthless god. The false gods of other nations will fall. The false gods, the idols in our lives will perish. But the creator of the universe will live forever. And that is the God we worship. Verse 14. Every man is stupid and without knowledge. We can be done there, right? <laughs> Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his images are false. They are worth oh, and there is no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of delusion. At the time of their punishment, they shall perish. Not like these is he who is the portion of Jacob, for he is the one who formed all things, and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance, and the Lord of hosts is his name. See, if you have an idol, verses 14 and 15 can be directly applied to you. Since I have idols in my life, they can be applied directly to me. I tried to warn you. We're not, this is not a feel-good message. But God is saying through Jeremiah, he's saying to, to the Israelites, you guys have idols. You're stupid and without knowledge. You're put to shame by your idols. Your idols are worthless, and they will perish. By the way, that's, that's me anytime I get frustrated with someone like kicking or stepping on my shoes. Happened a couple at VBS. Steve stepped on my brand-new Jordans, and I like, stay, snipped at him sarcastically. But in every bit of sarcasm is a little bit of truth, right? So I can sugarcoat, oh, ha, ha, Steve, I, you know you stepped on my shit, but I'm still a little salty about it. Know what I'm saying? That's not okay. Or Rob, just like, as I was setting this up, just grabbed that wooden basketball, his oily fingers all over the basketball and signature. I'm like, Rob, the oil ruins the signature. I can snip sarcastically, but in every bit of sarcasm, in this case, is a little bit of idolatry, right? Do you think I respond gracefully and understanding? I call this idol abuse. 
When somebody starts to mess with our idols, that really reveals where our heart is. Uh, generally, we can tell idol abuse is when something bad happens to our idols. We can tell where we're at when we lose a job or a relationship, when Steve kicks our shoes, Rob touches our basketball, uh, when our car gets scratched, when our prized possession gets lost. Our response to idol abuse reveals our hearts. Now, there's nothing wrong with having nice things. And I can mostly, honestly say, none of this stuff up here is idols. You can come up and you can burn the shoes. We're not having, by the way, we're not having a shoe burning party. Uh, we're not going to be markering up Hunter's stuff. Um, but you can have nice things and them not be idols. None of these things are my idols. You can step on my shoes. You can bend the bill on my hat. I'll buy another one. It's okay. Just money, right? But it's when those things take the place of God or become more important than the people around us. There's nothing wrong with having nice things and wanting to protect those nice things, but at what expense? Is it worth protecting a dumb pair of shoes if I hurt Steve's feelings or I fracture our relationship? No. Is it worth winning an argument if we push somebody away from the church or push them away from God? No. One author defined an idol as anything that receives affections that belong to God alone. And then here in verse 16, uh, it says that followers of God, portions of Jacob, won't be like these stupid, idolatrous men. We continue in verse 17. Gather up your bundle from the ground, O you who dwell under siege. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I am slinging out the inhabitants of the land, at this time, and I will bring distress on them that they may feel it. Woe is me because of my hurt, my wound is grievous. But I say, truly, this is an affliction, and I must bear it. My tent is destroyed, and all my cords are broken. My children have gone far from me, and they are not. There is no one to spread my tent again and to set up my curtains. For these shepherd for the shepherds are stupid. And do not inquire of the Lord. Therefore, they have not prospered, and all their flock is scattered. A voice, a rumor, behold, it comes, a great commotion out of the north country to make the cities of Judah a desolation, a lair of jackals. See, Jeremiah warned them that destruction was imminent because it was. They would go into captivity and spend some time under the rule and control of an evil nation. If God will send Israel to be ruled by an evil nation for a season, don't think he won't allow negative circumstances to rule in our lives to get our attention. Since they insisted on exchanging the glory of God for worthless idols, they would pay the cost in exchanging the blessing of their land for the curse of exile. If you have an idol... If you've placed it in the rightful place, God's place in your heart, he will ask for it. If not today, soon. But this series is called Jeremiah, a prophet with heart. So Jeremiah's heart for the people was that they returned to God. Ultimately through however God saw fit. So Jeremiah ends the chapter with this prayer. Verses 23 through 25. I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself. That it is not in man who walks to direct his steps. Correct me, O Lord, but in justice. 
not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. Pour out your wrath on the nations that you know not, that know you not, and on the peoples that call not on your name. For they have devoured Jacob, they have devoured him and consumed him, and have laid waste his habitation. See, Jeremiah knew that God was all-powerful and in total control. We call that God's sovereignty. He knew that God was the one that directs man's path. It's not man that directs our steps here. So Jeremiah is calling for divine justice from the creator of the universe. Church, when we look throughout history, God's justice very seldom looked like his people expected it to. I mean, fast forward to the New Testament. Everybody expected Jesus to come in and just demolish the political powers that be. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. My kingdom is not of this world. This isn't a, I'm not coming here to overthrow your government. Very seldom God's justice looked like his people expected it to. And because of that, sometimes their circumstances were not always pleasant. All throughout this book, we see Jeremiah crying out to the people of Israel to return to God. And in this particular chapter, he's begging them to cast down their idols and return God to his proper place in their life. As we dive into idolatry today, I, uh, got, as I was praying through this and thinking and studying, God brought to mind four categories that we have idolatry, where I've seen or myself have had idols in the church. Pride, possessions, people, and politics. Please hear my heart. I'm not here to condemn. My heart is for all of us to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. But in doing that, we have to die to ourselves, die to our idols, and live for Christ. We are to love God, love our neighbors, and make disciples. And our idols get in the way of that. Simply put, anything we put in the place of God is an idol. Anything we deem either consciously or subconsciously more significant in our lives than God. I was listening to a Tim Keller sermon this week on suffering. And in it, he said, whenever someone tells me that life is meaningless, it means something that you put your functional trust in has died. Church, are you putting your functional trust in something or in someone? Temporary, money, your job, your spouse, a political candidate. What if you lost that thing? that thing goes away. For the last 10 years or so, I've, I've started to become a little bit more aware of idols in my life. I was 19 when I read Humility, and I'm like, oh, I got this pride problem that uh, it's too big to sweep under the rug. So and I'm 28 here in a few weeks. So uh, coming up on 10 years, and I'm starting to identify, or over the last decade, I've identified some major idols in my life. That's the first step, identification. We need to become aware and identify and call out idols in our lives if we ever want to cast them aside. One idol that's come naturally to me, so I've been in uh, full-time ministry for about 10 years now, too. Uh, so work has been a big idol in my life. For the first five years of ministry, I was in camping ministry. Uh, and I worked a lot, definitely an unhealthy amount. Um, I would put hours in to fuel this pride machine. Uh, and then, I mean, the work I was doing was honorable. I was working in ministry. Kids were coming to camp. Churches were coming to camp, right? Good stuff. It was ministry. But I wouldn't only 
fuel this pride machine by the hours of work I put in, but also the additional 10 to 20 hours I put in volunteering at my local church. I mean, not many people put in 50, 60, sometimes 70 hours a week at their full-time ministry job and an additional 10 or 20 at church. I, I was doing a lot for God. It all inflated my eagle, ego, but I found that my tank was empty. And my tank was empty because I wasn't worshiping the creator of the universe. I was worshiping his creation ministry. See, I can boast about how often I work or how great the work I do is or how much money I make. By the way, <laughs> moving on. <laughs> but if I'm more concerned with the work that I'm doing, the money I'm making, or how people view me or my work, rather than the God that I work for, work becomes an idol. Success becomes an idol accolades become an idol. And you don't have, uh, by the way, you don't have to be in full-time ministry to work for God. You can work for IBM, Whitbex, Walmart, Jays. You're working for God. Do you place your identity in your job, in your success? Where does your job rank in the priorities of your life? Would you miss work so you don't have to miss church? Would you skip small group because of work? What about kids or grandkids, work, uh, sporting events, uh, family vacations? There's a line somewhere. There's balance somewhere. How has your job impacted your family life? What about your personal relationship with God? Your number one, your number one priority must be your personal relationship with God. Second, must be your family, and family discipleship. And then third, you do whatever, I don't care. After those first two. Remember that at the beginning, everything comes back to pride. As we look at our idols, it's important to understand that the root of idolatry is pride. None of us deserve to be where we are. And more importantly, none of us, I don't care if you've been a Christian five minutes or 50 years, none of us deserve God's grace. Yet he saw fit to redeem us. Have you made an idol out of yourself? Do you think that you're better than someone else because you've been in the church longer, at your job longer, you've, uh, you make more money than someone else, your level of, uh, level of education, how nice your car is, how massive your sports memorabilia collection is. By the way, mine's not massive. That's about all there is to it. One bookshelf. We make idols out of our pride. See, the trick isn't just identifying idols. That's step one. But it's removing them from God's place in our lives and returning him to his rightful place. Jeremiah wasn't pulling punches when he talks about the idolater. He says they're stupid and without knowledge. Now, you might not be creating golden, physical, wooden statues to worship, but maybe like me, you're buying your idols. You might not create a golden calf, but maybe you buy a golden guitar. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> so uh, a, a few weeks ago, i got to tell the story. Dan does not idolize his guitars. A few weeks ago, we're sitting in his office. He had, for whatever reason, like this eight-foot stack of metal tripod stand. I don't know. But I'm pretty clumsy, and as you can see, I talk with my hands. So you can't really have anything that can fall over near me. Well, anyway, he's got his, his favorite guitar 
uh, open, on his case, on his couch, big giant stack of metal, tripod stands, whatever. Guess what happened? I knocked him over. I chipped his guitar. And Dan punched me in the mouth. No, I'm kidding. He didn't. He was so gracious. You know what he said? He's like, you know, I actually kind of like that uh, grungy look on my guitar. So I went in my office. I grabbed a hammer. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Sometimes we idolize. We make idols out of our possessions. And some of my idols have fallen in this category. So I brought some of my former idols on stage with me. So you can see I'm not perfect. It's not too hard to convince me that I need to buy another pair of shoes or I need to buy another piece of sports memorabilia. My possession-based idolatry started when I worked at Jay's. It actually got worse. It, it was at its worst when I worked at Jay's because didn't have many bills at the time, was living with my parents, and every day I'd get to work surrounded by all this cool stuff. And every couple weeks, some of that cool stuff could come home with me, and it did. Shortly after that, I was faced head-on with my love of money and possessions. It was idolatry. When I read Jesus' interaction with the rich young ruler, I read about a guy who checked all the boxes. He followed all the rules. He followed all the commands. And he, and he had a lot of cool stuff. He had a lot of money. He had a lot of power. But Jesus asked him to sell all of his stuff and follow Christ. And then I looked, at my, looked in the mirror and I said, man, I've been going to church my whole life. I'm a youth volunteer. I, but I also make some money and I got some stuff. If Jesus asked me to sell everything I had for him, would I do it? Would you? Maybe it's not money, but is there anything that you place such a high value on that if you lost it, you feel like it would ruin you? Uh, I remember the first time my grandpa let me hold his 1953 Topps Satchel Page baseball card. And if you know anything about cards, that is an expensive card. See, having nice things isn't the sin. And it doesn't automatically make them idols. We aren't idolaters for having nice things. We are idolaters for making these things our God and living for these things. It's when these things become more important to us than God or how he calls us to live. So five to ten years ago, maybe these things would have been my idols, and maybe they would have more power than me. But like I said, if Joshua comes up and starts marking up my shoes, I'm not going to mess with him, for one, because he's giant, and two, because they're not idols in my life. But please, don't do that. <laughs> what about your time? We don't often think about time as a possession, but it's our most valuable possession that we have. Do you start your day asking God to direct your path? Or are you too busy getting ready for work, uh, watching the morning news, getting the kids around, whatever, to even consider that it's the day the Lord has made? See, often we expect God to bless and protect our day when we won't even acknowledge that it's his day to begin with. See, I find that when, we, when it comes to identifying idols, they're usually the things that we have the tightest grip on. And it's usually those things that God will require of us. So we make idols out of our possessions. No, we don't. Um, we make idols out of our possessions. But we also make idols out of our people. Often the biggest idols in our lives are people. 
Uh, if someone has any connections with Chuck Norris, let me know. I'd love to meet the guy. But I don't know. He's not an idol, right? One of the most irritating parts of working with teenagers. So if you don't know, I'm the youth pastor here. I spend most of my time hanging out with teenagers. One of the most irritating parts is when they start to enter into the boyfriend-girlfriend phase of teenagehood. The relationship stage. They idolize their boyfriend or their girlfriend. And it gets, it's just a mess. Because God becomes second fiddle. Spiritual disciplines fall to the wayside. And if the relationship ends, woo, watch out. They pl- see, they place their identity in this temporary relationship with an imperfect person. Shocker teenagers, none of y'all are perfect. And what they don't realize is that they've turned this person into their God. They've put their functional trust, as Keller says, into this person. See, everything they do revolves around this person. How, they, how, how is this person going to think if I say this or if I do this? How will they respond? All of their time is spent with this person. The rest of their relationships, friends, family, siblings, fall to the wayside. This is a great example of idolatry. But here's the thing. I don't think this sort of relational idolatry is exclusive to teenagers in their dating relationships. I think it happens in marriages too. I always preface, I don't like talking about things I don't know anything about. And that list is massive. At the top of the list, marriage and parenting. So anything I say, marriage and parenting has been filtered through a lot of prayer and then wisdom and counsel from the three other pastors on staff who are all married with kids. I think relational idolatry happens in marriages too. If pleasing your spouse is more important than honoring God through your marriage... You have created an idol. I mean, we joke about happy life or happy wife, happy life, but if that's the primary goal in your marriage, you're not honoring God. Husbands, you cannot fully love your wife if you're not first fully loving God. Wives, same thing. You cannot fully love your husband if you're not first fully loving God. See, God calls us to sacrificially love and care for our spouses, but he does not call us to sacrifice our relationship with him in the process. Teens, or really anyone not married but in a relationship. If you are in a relationship and the other person expects you to love them more than anything, including God, that relationship probably needs to end. One of the dangers of being a Christian in a relationship with an unbeliever is that they can't fully wrap their minds around the fact that we have to love God more than we love our significant other or a spouse, whatever. And single people, we tend to idolize the idea of being in a relationship. And I don't have time to dive into this. In December, I did a, mes- a sermon on singleness. You can find that on the Vimeo page. But... If you aren't fully satisfied in your relationship with God, you're not going to be satisfied when you enter into a relationship with God. Scripture has a lot to say about contentment. But our world, our society sends a different message. Church, we must set ourselves apart as believers through our relationships with others. We must 
live differently. And if we do not love God first, we can't fully love anyone. Another area I see it is with parents, see idolatry is with parents and their kids. I get it, y'all. I come from a, par- a family with a crazy blended family, eight kids, like 17 sets of siblings, 452 cousins. I don't know how many aunts or uncles. Parents want a better life for their kids. So they create a lot of opportunities and experiences. And I've lived a lot of awesome opportunities and experiences that my parents didn't get because of what they did for us. But if you're sacrificing your own spiritual or personal growth or your children's spiritual growth to create those opportunities, you may have created an idol out of your children. I want to flip to Matthew, and you don't have to flip if you don't want to, but uh, Matthew 10, 34 through 39. Uh, Jesus says, oh, never mind, i got to turn one more page. All right, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves a father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus says we aren't worthy of him if we love our family members more than him. Spouse, parents, kids, Grandkids, if we love our life, we will lose it. If we lose our life for him, we will save it. Be cautious not to be too attached to this life. Another passage came to mind that most parents will be familiar with. Uh, Proverbs 22.6. Train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. Parents, you are training your children up either explicitly or inexplicitly, through your actions. If you aren't connected to the body of Christ, if you are not showing up to church, serving the church, attending a discipleship community or small group, uh, you are giving them permission to not be connected as well. If you regularly skip church because your kid has travel ball, you have work, there's vacations, hunting or fishing trips, etc., You're giving your child a list of things that you prioritize more than your connectivity to the body of Christ and in turn giving them permission to make their list too. Now, that's not saying you can't ever miss church, right? Vacations are great. Work happens. Sports are awesome. Love sports. Occasionally missing church is one thing, but actively choosing to regularly neglect gathering and connecting with the body is a problem. And don't get it twisted. It's not just about showing up. There's another thing I don't have a lot of time to dive into, but um, I'll sneak in a little shameless plug for the podcast Jeremiah and I do called Chewing on Theology. Uh, We talked about, we spent two episodes talking about church involvement and church attendance um, and how it's more than just showing up. And you can find those on the website or anywhere you listen to podcasts. But parents, the bottom line is you are the primary spiritual influence in your lives, for better or for worse. Regardless of their friends' influence, school, church, music, etc., you are still the number one spiritual influence in your kid's life. And dad, statistically speaking, you have the most influence. 
So if you aren't home leading spiritually, guess what? Your kids will follow suit. If you don't come to church or you come begrudgingly, your kids are going to follow suit. And if you're not reading your Bible, speaking biblical truth into the family, and exhibiting the love and grace of God under your own roof, your kids will follow suit. Allow me to be slightly more direct. Parents, if you aren't intentionally discipling your children at home, don't bring them here and drop them off with me and Steve and expect us to fix them or train your children up. That is not our job. Now, if you're a parent who doesn't know how to do that, that is our job. That's where we come in. We have, I have an entire page on the church website of parent resources, how to do a family Bible study, uh, websites that have oodles and oodles of articles and blogs and videos on how to tackle certain issues, how to talk with, about politics with your kids, how to talk about sexuality with your kids, all this stuff. But if you're not going there, I'm not going there. Although my job is not to be the primary spiritual influence in your teen's life, I'm on the list. More importantly, I want to walk with you as we both disciple your children. More importantly, I'm here for you. Don't, don't hear that and say, Hunter doesn't want to disciple my kids. Hunter doesn't want anything to do with my... No, I want to walk with you. I've had some incredible conversations over the last six months with parents who have kids struggling with certain things parents who don't know how to, like parents who started family discipleship uh, Bible studies with their kids as they're in high school, never did it for the last 15 years of their life. How do I get my kid more engaged in these family discipleship or family Bible studies? Talk to me. That's what we're here for. That's what Steve's here for. That's what I'm here for. We're here to equip you to better disciple your children. Ideally, we come alongside you, we echo what you're already saying, and we'll both be saying the same thing because we're all teaching out of the Bible, right? But we're, we're not the primary spiritual influence in your kids' lives. Family discipleship cannot be at maximum effectiveness if you aren't discipling your kids at home. Think about it. It's like driving a vehicle with just the front two tires, assuming the vehicle's front-wheel drive. You'll still get to where you're going, but it's far more effective with all four tires. And we can't get there if God is not primary in your life. God must be primary in your life if you expect him to be primary in your child's. So we make idols out of our people church. We also make idols out of our politics. This part's going to be short because some of you stopped listening when I said politics, like way at the beginning. Uh, and I don't really want any riots breaking out today either. But here's the deal. If you care more about sharing your political opinions, especially online, than you do about sharing your faith, politics may be an idol. Church, your job is not to fix the country or bring it back to its Christian roots or win arguments. Your job as followers of Christ is to make disciples share the gospel, love God with every part of our being, and love neighbors at ourselves, as ourselves. Don't get it twisted. Kingdom living transcends political parties. Stop trying to win arguments and start trying to win souls. Whew. I would have loved to have the message on hope this week. There's a big problem if people know more about your political stances than they do your faith. 
There's also a big problem if you talk to your kids more often about politics than you do the things of God. We are called to be citizens of heaven first, ambassadors for Christ first, and citizens of this world second. Let us not reject the commandment to love God and love our neighbors or make disciples to further any political agenda or win an argument. God doesn't care if we win arguments if in the process we lose souls. We make idols out of our pride, out of our possessions, our people, and our politics. But how do we identify an idol? How do we remove it from the throne of our lives and replace it with God? First, I said identification. We have to be aware of our idols. And we need to identify and call them out. If you were upset or hurt or turned the off switch on when I... Turn, turn the off switch on? Turn the switch off. <laughs> when I mentioned a specific category, person, or thing, please try to discern if it's something to genuinely be upset about or if it's the Holy Spirit bringing conviction. Know my heart. I'm not up here. I, like I said, I'd much rather get up here and give you some message that makes you leave feeling good. I'm not up here to make you mad, to poke buttons, or start arguments. I'm here because we collectively are called to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And I want us all to be doing that to the best of our abilities. But without spending a few moments reflecting on our idols, we cannot worship God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Conviction is an incredible indicator of change. Incredible indicator of necessary change. None of us are perfect. We all still sin. First John says, if you say you don't have sin, you lie. None of us are perfect. So we all need to be reminded of that sin so that we can repent and run into the arms of the Father. We all need to be convicted because we are all a work in progress seeking to be like Jesus. If you're convicted, thank God for that and ask for wisdom and discernment in addressing it. And if you're not convicted by anything I said, well, it doesn't mean you don't have an idol. You may, it just might be something different. Uh, you may not be aware of it, or you may not want to be aware of it. Genuinely, humble yourselves. Ask God to reveal any idols in your life. And then find another believer. This is all about community. Find another believer that you trust and ask if they can help identify any idols in your life and help you combat those idols. Like I said earlier, the more time we spend studying the Word of God, praying and communing with our Creator, the fewer idols we have and the less power those idols will have over our lives. Often, this is me, 100% me, when someone comes up to me and says, Hunter, you're doing something wrong. Usually it's Dan telling me something about work, some tech thing. Hunter, you don't know what you're doing. Hunter, don't try playing a guitar. You don't know what you're doing. I get defensive. Come on, Dan. I watched a YouTube video about playing the guitar. I know what I'm doing. We get, when people confront us, regardless of their heart, we get defensive. In this case, we're talking about idolatry, pride, idolatry, pride, and other sin. Uh, we try to justify our behavior. We try to make excuses or pass blame. Well, I only did that because they said no. We try to defend our behavior. Don't do that. Acknowledge your idol, repent, and move forward. Church, if we truly believe 
that God is the most high, holy, all-powerful, and sovereign creator of the universe who loves us so much that he sent his son to die on a cross so that we could be in a relationship with him, that he alone is worthy of our praise. He alone is worthy of our worship. He alone is worthy to be called our God. May our prayer be like that of Jeremiah's, O Lord, the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his steps. Correct me, O God. May our prayer be, I know, O Lord, that I know nothing. I do not direct my steps. Correct me, O Lord. May we have the humility to approach the throne of grace, to repent, and to turn from our idolatry. If you have an idol, cast it aside, because the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and everlasting King. Earthly idols will fade and perish, but the God of the universe will reign for all eternity. And church, he wants you right there with him. He wants you to be free from these temporary, foolish, and insignificant idols, and all you have to do is open your hands. As we do on the first Sunday of every month, we're going to partake in communion today. As we do so, I want you to know that you don't have to be a member of Brown Corners Church to participate in communion, but you do have to be a follower of Christ. If you're new here or unfamiliar with how we do communion, in a few moments, um, I'll give you a moment of silence to pray. I'll pray, and then everybody kind of exit to the right, come get the elements, go to the left. We have gluten-free options in the middle. Um, and then if you feel led, there are baskets set up for our benevolence fund, which goes to support our people, our BCC family when needs arrive. So reflecting on the Last Supper and communion itself, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. We spent quite a lot of time today talking about our idols, our sin, and the many ways we turn our back on God. As Paul writes, let us examine ourselves before we partake. And I'm going to give you a moment to handle your business with God. Church, don't make the mistake of drinking judgment on yourself because you carried your idol up and set it up as you went to pick up your elements. Cast your idols before God. Church, if you have business to handle, handle it. It would be better for you to skip communion today than partake with unhandled business. The grace of God is sufficient for anything you want to throw at his feet. John reminds us in 1 John that if we repent, God is faithful and just and he will forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Run into his arms. Drop your idols at his feet and experience that grace this morning. So I'm going to give you a moment of silence. Take this time to pray, repent, cast your idols at his feet, and then after I pray, 
will partake. And as always, after the service, we'll have a few folks up here to pray if, if you want to pray with someone. Let's pray. You are a holy God. You alone are worthy of our praise. You alone are worthy of our worship. God, forgive me for the times that I forget that and place worthless temporary idols in your place. God, if we have an idol that we're neglecting to recognize, convict us, Father. If we have idols we aren't willing to relinquish, soften our hearts, drive us to our knees in repentance, and as Jeremiah calls for, God, provide divine justice. Nothing on this earth, no possessions, no person, no political ideal or candidate is more worthy of our worship than you. God, let us not get caught up in this world, but give us your eyes. Give us a kingdom mindset. Focus solely on eternity so that you will be glorified through our lives. May our prayer be not that our will, our plans, and our desires be done, but yours and yours alone. God, as we partake in communion today, let us not forget why we do this. Because you loved us first, and you saw fit to redeem us through the blood of Christ. Thank you, Father, for sending Christ to die on our behalf so that we could be with you for eternity. Guide us each day as we seek to make your name known through our lives. We ask all these things in Jesus' name.
stand with us if you thank us with us. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the cross. My thank you, Lord. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the cross. My friend. Once again. Once again. Bless you all. We love you. Have a fantastic morning.